Ladies and gentlemen, it's 1938. Hitler? What Hitler? Actually, no, Hitler's still... Why did I start this first series with Hitler? What's wrong with me? Okay, it's 1938 and it's the golden age of Hollywood. Glamour, sophistication and a hell of a lot of tights. That's right, this is Robin On, the Raven On podcast recap subsection thingy that we'll be focusing for the next however many weeks on Robin Hood movies and I may never have been so excited since we first started this podcast on Game of Thrones because what is Game of Thrones without Robin Hood and mystery and even apparently the name Dickon where am I going with all of this (laughs) I'm going directly to one man And it's a man who currently is progressing slowly through a crowd wearing a black cloak like an abbot. And he's about ready to unveil himself in fabulous fashion to reveal the chainmail and tunic of a glorious knight of the realm. It's Stuart Light! Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. Yes, I mean, we give people crap for saying that Superman uh, has a crap disguise, but in this one, Robin Hood's disguise was literally to put on a different coloured hood. And different coloured tights. And different, uh, different tights. And honestly, complete change. I should have mentioned in that intro that we are doing the adventures of Robin Hood, the yes. classic Warner Brothers. It is Warner Brothers, so it's in keeping with our DC Batman thing. Absolutely. This is a Warner Brothers film, and it is the first, I guess, best-known talky Robin Hood, and it's certainly the first Technicolor Robin Hood because there was a Robin Hood film in 1922 starring Douglas Fairbanks. Absolutely, which, which is famous enough that I I knew about it just being a film buff. Like it's it's a very famous film. Mm, it's very long, but you can watch it on YouTube. Yes, it's well, two which hours. I, which I did. I, I did sample. Uh, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I did sample like bits of it. So it's on uh, YouTube, two hours and twenty three minutes. We did toy with starting with that. But to be honest, you know, I'm sure at the time silent movies were just the best, but coming from a hundred years of talkies, it's like, it's still quite a hard thing to get into. (laughs) Well, and also like, you know, the Douglas Fairbanks one, Robin Hood is known within film circles, but the Errol Flynn Robin Hood is the Robin Hood movie. It is. It is. If we had to start anywhere, that's where we're going to start. Yeah, and Errol Flynn was the, you know, the swashbuckling heir to Douglas Fairbanks' legacy, I guess. So it makes sense that that he's the the one we f- focus on. And of course, he was an Australian. He was a Tasmanian, was. famously. Although for a lot of his life, I think he concealed that in Hollywood because he he pretended to be either in because he went to England to try and break into acting after he did a film in Australia. And then he married someone on the boat to Hollywood who basically decided to call him the Irish star of English stage or something like that. So right. whether so, a lot of people thought for years that he was English or Irish and he didn't really do much to, to correct them. So, uh, yes, he is definitely an Australian, born and raised in Tasmania or born in Sydney, raised in Tasmania. I can't remember. But, you know, look, Errol Flynn. That's the- so funny because, like, he, he has a... He has an, an Australian lilt to his voice, which is quite funny to watch in, he, in a movie like it's, this. It's, just, it's, it's, it's He's mostly English, but it's like just every once in a while there'll be a little twang where you're like, oh, okay, I get it. Yes. And I think it's similar to what we were discussing with Russell Crowe as Jor-El where yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you definitely hear it. If you were an American listening to that, you'd be like, oh, definitely British. English. But as an Australian, when you listen, you hear the slight differences in it. So I imagine Americans watching would just hear him as being quite English. But 
Sure. Um, we know. We know the truth. Real, real Aussies can hear it. And look, one day we should do a full podcast just about Errol Flynn because he was very interesting. Uh, do, do we have to though? Because I mean, <laughs> he, he is, Errol Flynn is like the, the epitome of a problematic fave. Uh, maybe, maybe without uh, yeah. even the fave and without I, the fave I think if I can just tell a, a somewhat legendary story from my mm. teenage years because I the thing about me Stu and just to tangent as we start I was super into the golden age of Hollywood in my teens I sure. had book after book about the old studio system and you know kind of inspired by Marilyn Monroe and Gone with the Wind and that kind of kicked me into so I know that people you know, know me as the person who hasn't seen films, but there's actually quite a few films from the golden era that I have seen. Absolutely. Uh, including this one, obviously. And I loved reading biographies and things like that. And I think my mother got a biography of Errol Flynn, either for me or for her. And she read it and I remember it coming up at dinner one night. And my mother's a very politely spoken Irish woman pre having a few drinks. Then she'll, you know, be slightly less polite. But um, <laughs> she... <laughs> She just out of the blue one night at the dinner table, my brother and I were teenagers, and I brought up Errol Flynn. And she said, oh, Errol Flynn. And she paused and she said, he really was a c- <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and bleep that word, but you know what I mean. And I had never heard that word out of my mother's mouth. And I was simultaneously shocked and absolutely delighted because she's not wrong. <laughs> uh, no, she's definitely not. <laughs> she just kind of summed him up. There are, there are a few words that apply more to any man, <laughs> any man who's ever lived than that word to Errol Flynn. And I think that, you know, his vitality and energy in this film is sort of only matched by how in bad health he was by the end of his life. He died at 50. You know, he did not leave this world uh, after a long time. He was very no, much no, he was, he was a, very much there for a good time, not a long time. Yeah, exactly right. I think yes. he was like riddled with syphilis or something like. No, well, he um he had uh, he had uh, cirrhosis of the liver so bad that uh, it was listed as a contributing factor in his death. Oh, um, wow. But he, he also had like a major back injury that he was taking like way too strong painkillers for and stuff like oh, that. Oh so. well, they this is the thing. God, back in the day, if you wanted oh. to be on drugs, stew. They just you, gave them to you. <laughs> you just need to be a Hollywood star, not even a particularly famous one, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. They just put you on everything. They just mm. like Judy Garland on speed to get through the day and to keep her weight down and then on depressants to make her go to sleep at night. And, gee, wonder how that went for her in the long time. <laughs> everything was just like, here, take these pills, take these pills, take these pills. Like it was that scene from The Simpson of take these, take these, take these. Thank you, Doctor. Oh, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so, yeah, so Errol Flynn would have been on a, a whole bunch of stuff. Then, of course, there was his very, very infamous trial involving two underage girls and a statutory rape trial. Mm. So he was acquitted for that but it did permanently damage his reputation. And I, I suspect that he probably did a lot more things, not to compare because, you know, assault is assault, but I suspect that that was one of the, the least bad things he did. Well, well, he also had at least one other separate relationship with a woman, with a girl who was 15 when they first started that's, dating. Yes, that's right. Uh, you know, but and, also, and then also, yes, sorry. He, he worked in um, Papua New Guinea before he became an actor. Yes, yes. I was going to say this exact same story, yeah. When he was in, in like 1819 and he ended up in Papua New Guinea basically trying to be a little colonialist and there's 
I think this like fairly- gleefully, gleefully being like a white colonialist yeah, in Papua New yeah, Guinea. Yeah, and this is in the twenties, and yeah. he's like, "Yep, I've got my gun. I'm going to shoot natives like that level." Uh, yeah. So. He Just was, a real, real bad guy. Real bad guy, but I tell Which you what. so uncomfortable because he's such a goddamn compelling screen presence in this he movie. He is so good. And I think this is the thing about, like, he had charisma, man. He just had it. So anyway, so let's let's maybe start by, Stu, do you want to do a quick summary of the plot of this film? Oh, boy. Because then, um, we'll, okay. then we'll go into, I guess, the legends that it's based on and how it sets up yeah. you know, so much of what we then come to know about Robin Hood on film. Okay, so basically it starts in a fairly arbitrary place, uh, I thought. I was like, okay, that's where they're choosing to start this because they just sort of go, Richard's away and Prince John and Guy of Gisborne yeah, are just sort of sitting around vaguely plotting out loud to each other in the... <laughs> in the- Yes, yes, my brother Richard is overseas. <laughs> um, and let's plot out loud in these extremely large, echoey castle halls. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm sure no one will overhear us. We, we then are introduced to Robin, uh, who's just like going about his day, basically. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. We, we we're introduced to. Uh, is it? We, we're introduced to Much the Miller's son first. Yes, um, vaguely. He's Going to be, oh yeah, he's going to be executed for poaching, and then uh, Robin and Will Scarlet just show up because they're just mm. rolling around Sherwood yeah. Forest like yeah. a pair of medieval gangsters, <laughs> uh, and they're just like, "Hey, let that guy go!" And Guy Gisborne's like, "No," and he's like, "Yeah, do it." And Guy's <laughs> like, "Yes, okay, sure." And then off they go, and Much is like, "Yep, you're my boss now," because that's how that worked back in the day, I guess. <laughs> Then I mean, um, he can save his life. You oh, could that's argue, true. That's you true. Could argue yeah, he, I mean, he felt I'm, a being life for, I'm being facetious. Yes, no, I absolutely. Know, I know, but yes, I know. then they have the famous bridge fight with uh, Little John. Uh, yeah, because Robin just decides to start fight. Robin is weirdly cocky in this one, in and weirdly like a dick wants to wants to fight people all the time. <laughs> I know that it's in keeping with like how the medieval sort of uh, legends were told. But it does feel a lot like Errol Flynn sort of bleeding into the character a bit. Because apparently he was a guy who would just like throw down. He's just one of those guys who is just going to, hey, come on, step yeah. outside. Let's let's settle this. Let's do this, man. Yeah, let's, let's do this. Yeah, he, finds think- he, he has a brawl with Fryer Tuck then later. Um, over meat. <laughs> over meat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At that point, I think they then capture Guy of Gisborne, the Sheriff of Nottingham, and Lady Marion, and all of those people, all of their, like, soldiers who apparently don't fight at all. They just sort of give up immediately <laughs> um, and then come back, and, and then that's when Robin and Marion sort of have their moment to fall in love. They have the the famous archery tournament archery where tournament, Robin, yeah. Robin wins and splits, splits his arrow in splits twain. Arrow, yeah. uh, he's immediately captured because, of course, he is. It's a very obvious trap. Uh, and then... <laughs> They have a massive fight at the castle. Everyone, all the bad guys uh, die or are imprisoned. Uh, In the meantime, King Richard has returned. He has come back from the Crusades to lead his people. And at the end of the day, at the end of the movie, he's restored to the throne. And uh, Robin and Marion ride off uh, into Sherwood Forest, where they presumably are going to live happily ever after. And it's a very cool movie, Natalie, and it rules. I love it. I love it a lot. (laughs) I have to say that I just had this week that we're recording has been a particularly up and down one for me. 
And watching this movie was probably the most delightful thing of this week for me. It's just, it's pure escapism. It's pure eye candy. It's just the music, that score, the orchestral score, the da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. So much of it has been parodied too. Like like it's... It, it manages to still be a good movie. You know, you, you're not you're not laughing at the movie at any point, despite the fact that so much of pop this movie has been strip mined by popular culture in the years yeah. since. Yes, I mean particularly later on by Men in Tights. The sure, yes. Parody really takes this aesthetic. Uh, <laughs> it, it obviously takes the piss a lot out of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which we'll get to. Oh, uh, we'll get to. <laughs> but yes, the, the main aesthetic is is this. And we're going to jump into our minute challenge uh, right now. But I just, um, and this is in my minute challenge, but I thought it would be worth sort of saying this up front to you, Stu, that on this rewatch, and I, I don't want to sound offensive with this, but this film has never made me more want to be a gay man. Um <laughs> <laughs> I think you mean a merry man. They're referred a, a, to as merry men. A, 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 a merry man in the forest in the <laughs> late 12th century, just having the time of my fucking life. Yeah. That place looked so amazing. They I, they are just, they are living their best lives, aren't they? It's not, it's not, yeah. Yeah, when, when Richard Pardons them all at the end, a pardon for the men of Sherwood, and they're like, hurrah! And I kind of wanted something to be like, oh, does this mean Aww. we have to leave the fun disco party? <laughs> Can we still fest? live in the forest? <laughs> we still live in the forest with all of our mates wearing our tight tights. Um, <laughs> yeah, just because I just want to sort of, it's, it's in my minute challenge, but just talk about the aesthetic of the film because it was Technicolor and it wasn't supposed to be Technicolor until about three mm. months before it was I didn't realise that. I, I realised that re- uh, reading some background for this podcast I was like oh wow this was going to be a black and white movie yeah and I don't think it would have the cultural relevancy without that Technicolor because it just just that bright green it's so bright and just the primary colors the red the yellow the blue it just it's all primary colors and the green of course and it's it just which which is actually very I mean we, we now know is actually very um, period accurate. A lot of people sort of think that it's it's sort of anachronistic, but it, everything was dyed very bright colours in medieval times. It was like bright colours were very desirable. That makes me so happy. Because, I look, I love a gritty, you know, mud bath reboot, uh, which I would argue is what Prince of Thieves is. Don't Yo, it absolutely it. is. Um, well, weird, <laughs> weirdly, this, this film is way more period accurate than Prince of Thieves. <laughs> I, I mean, were people wearing... That many flashy, because Errol Flynn's outfit, that first outfit that he wears that's the all green, so the green tights and the green tunic before he puts the brown, yeah, you know, before he puts the full green shirt with the brown tunic over the top, right, the kind of classic look, and he's just wearing a full tunic. It's got like spangles on the sleeves and on the yeah. hem of his yeah, tunic, yeah. and it is like glinting in the sun, like a freaking disco outfit, and that's what I mean. And then like Will Scarlet is wearing the biggest fuck-off red feather in his hat. <laughs> yes. It's like, dude, how are you in disguise? Like even when they go into their camouflage mode and Will Scarlet's in more camo gear, he's still wearing a red. He's um, still wearing his red. I know, like, like he's, a, he's still accessorizing. Is, is it called a habard or something? No, anyway, it's that, it's that cloth, it's that collar thing that they wear. And he's still got his massive pointy red hat with its massive fuck-off flower, flower, yeah. feather. <laughs> he's like, no, 
They need to know that I'm coming. I'm coming through the forest. You will be (laughs) paying attention. So yeah, but I mean, it's nice to know that things were that bright, but everything was very clean as well. I don't know that everything would have been as clean (laughs) as it is in this movie. Yeah, well, especially for a bunch of people who are living in the forest. That's right. And also Maid Marion's outfits are just like the silks and satins, Mm. and they're the craziest colours, just extraordinary colours. There's one that she's wearing, which is like this, when she escapes to go warn them that that Robin's going to be hanged, and it's like this alien 70s disco ball black and metal concoction that I was just sitting there going, oh, my God, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just want well, to and again, like, like it's it's interesting to note that like the costumes that she and and her like offsider or her her lady in waiting, I guess, or her 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 nanny sort of person are Best. like again again pretty period accurate. Like you know oh. that, that that sort of all over the head, if just you... just your face peeking out. Like that's very accurate to the yeah. time. Way more so than many subsequent films, including like a certain favorite of yours. Where, Shut like, up. you know, you often have, like, you know, off-the-shoulder numbers and all that sort of thing that would have been, like, a complete scandal in, in 11, 1126 <laughs> or whatever. 1191. 1191, Steve. I beg your the pardon. The Crusade. Thank you very much. Of, co- of course, um, yes. So, yes, it's it's just, it's a feast for the eyes and also for the for the ears with the, the score and also for the senses with all of the meat. There's just so much meat in this Lots film. of meat. It's a big, it's a meat-heavy this- film. So and they did do that, like they, they didn't have knives and forks. Well, they had knives, but they didn't have forks back then. So they just all tuck in, like yeah. It just yeah. made me want to get a honk of meat and just sit there, like gnawing a turkey leg or something. Well, I, I invite you to join me for a, for dinner at the at the German club in Brisbane ah. because <laughs> that they will give you a a, a honk of pork that looks very similar to that. <laughs> all right, should we go with our minute challenge? Let's do it. Let's do let's it. Do we're, it. We're, we're already in, but let's do it. Let's, yeah, let's do you get want me to? It. Do you want me to start? Yeah, yeah, go, go okay, for it. You I'm, start. I'm being selfish. I want to start. I wrote down so much color, and I also wrote down God. Errol Flynn could fill out a pair of tights. <laughs> <laughs> he is strangely. He is not not strangely. He is incredibly charismatic. Like we've we've established very definitively that he was a complete sea bomb, but he <laughs> was like a, a charming bastard. Like he really was. And it kind of fits, like you know, he he did play like rogues. He played a lot of like mm, you know roguish, and... roguish characters, pirates mm. and outlaws and all that sort of thing. And it just fits Robin Hood so well. He's so good in this role. He clearly had real life experience of being a bit of an outlaw, a bit of a yeah, you know, on the rough side, that kind of thing. But he is he just gets across that right mix of, he, you know, he's doing that hero thing, and he has this laugh that um, Carrie Yule's you know, parodies so beautifully in Men of yes. Tights where he's got his hands on his hips and he goes, ha, 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 throws his head back in this gut laugh. And yeah. it, it feels a bit cliche and naff, but he pulls it off. It's this yeah. real like joy of just being him is the best. Like they, he's got- they, they do nothing if not take the, the, the phrase merry men to heart. They, they yeah. really, everyone is extremely merry in this film. He's serious, but he's still funny. And, you know, when he has a scene where he's showing Marion around the, the campground and showing them the sick people and the people who've been affected by... One thing about this I should should say, and it's on my list, Saxons v. Normans. This is something that's oh, in yes. some yeah. Robin Hood stories, but not all. Um, it's sort of dropped a bit from later Robin Hood stories, I think, this idea of yeah, the Normans it feels- being Saxons. I feel I feel like a lot of modern portrayals make it think that it's a bit too much of a history lesson. I think and a lot also, of people don't really. Yeah, and also you're talking about 
white people versus white people. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean that. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, you know, because, this, and, and the, I mean, the fact that they're all speaking English is not period accurate because the Normans spoke French and the Saxons would have spoke Saxon, Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. And the, the, the languages started to mix, which is why in English we have bits of both of the languages. So we have well, fam- the, the famous way to tell uh, what is uh, a Norman word and what's a Saxon word is that if it's a word for something that's on the table, it's a Norman word. And if it's an, a, a name for an animal that lives in the field, it's a, it's a Saxon word. Yeah, so well, exactly. And beef and, Cow and yeah, beef. Yeah, know? exactly. Cheese and um, I've just forgotten the French word for cheese. Fromage. Fromage. Uh, but also things like um, axe, strong Anglo-Saxon word that was sort of yeah. a key thing of Anglo-Saxon words is they were very um, like a lot of one-syllable, two-syllable words, whereas French words are more flowery. So then you have a hatchet and that's the French word. And mm. um, famously, I learned this from Melvin Bragg uh, in The Adventures of English. If you listen to Churchill and his fight them on the beaches speech, it's Anglo-Saxon words. So we will fight yeah. them on the beaches. The fight is an Anglo-Saxon word. Surrender is a French word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no Anglo-Saxon word for surrender, apparently. <laughs> certainly not one that survives. Surrender is a French word, which is, you know, oh. another hang shit on the French. Sorry, French people listening. I don't think that you're cheesing surrender monkeys, according to the Simpsons. Uh, it's, it's not true at all. But, yes, it's, it's surrender is a French word. So we will fight, we will fight, we will never surrender. We'll be English, 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 never French. Never French, who at that um, point had capitulated. and Exactly. So, yeah. we're you know, we're talking about uh, motivational, deep cultural motivational language. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. For English people. But also, you know, th- so the languages, you know, both fed into what became English as, as we know it. Or mm, as, you know. Absolutely. But, yeah, so the Normans were the governing class, ha- having England being conquered a, a century before this film is ostensibly set so the normans were the ruling class so they owned the knights and the property and the saxons were essentially the shit kickers mm. robin of locksley in this film is an, an, uh, an a saxon lord or a saxon knight yeah which was uh, i was surprised to find because uh, that that is often brought up in film adaptations possibly referring directly to this but for for a long long time in all of the stories leading up to sort of the 20th century he was always robin hood was always like a yeoman outlaw mm. like he was a he was a, a commoner um who sort of rose up whereas like i think this may maybe a few of the victorian era stories had had made him sort of more of an aristocrat that they wanted to make him more of a a batman like figure for want of a better word like well, a, a yeah. Doesn't he appear in um, Ivanhoe? Isn't that Walter Scott's yes. Ivanhoe? Yes, yes, absolutely he does. Yeah, yeah, quite I've famously. I've read, I've got to read more Walter Scott just to get some good Scottish credentials under me. But, yeah, so he's, <laughs> he's in that and isn't he might be um, – He's listed, he, might, he is a lord in that. Yeah, absolutely, you're right. So so that might be the first time he's sort of – Upgraded. You know, upgrade, yeah, he, he gets a promotion. Mm. Um, and from then on, it's sort of warring – adaptations um and basically everyone everyone's looking back to this movie pretty much uh and and this movie mentions that he's a a saxon lord that gave up his his lands and his castle to fight for for freedom Mm. but what i love about the film though too and this wasn't in my notes but uh is in my brain is the pace of it that we get right into it he's already in the forest he's already basically an outlaw he kind of confirms it with the big dining banquet scene where he comes in with the with the deer but he, um, you know, he's he's already there. He's already in the forest. Whereas with you know other Robin Hood stories, including Prince of Thieves, he can't. You kind of see him become the outlaw. You see his 
life change. Whereas this movie just gets straight in. It has some cool title cards that say everything's gone to shit and Robin Hood (laughs) and it's Robin and Will Scarlet and they rock up in the bright green and the bright red. It's amazing. It's so colorful. I love, I love that they're color coded. I love that. I love that. It's almost like they're superheroes. Like like they've got their own color schemes, you know, like, and I wonder if that kind of fed in because obviously the late 30s, you you know, and you started getting color printing, didn't you? That's when you sort of started getting those. You talked to me before about the, the, those, that's why a lot of early comics are those very bright primary colors too, because they had the, there was like a process. Well, I was about to say, yeah, absolutely. There was a three color process that they came up with that they could, print these you know brightly colored comics and to and so they gave everyone a brightly colored costume but i was just thinking like this movie came out in 1938 so i think it technically not technically i think it literally does predate superman um (gasps) oh my god Stu, we've cracked it we have cracked it um yeah superman is a robin hood allegory (laughs) well i think as I mentioned last week, uh, Green Arrow is 100% the, oh, uh, <laughs> and actually like hilarious, like funnily enough, Robin, as in Batman and Robin, like yeah. Robin was based quite heavily on Robin Hood, which is why he's called Robin or yeah. one of the reasons anyway, like, like he's got that sort of swashbuckling and he's, you know, you look at his costume, certainly his original costume and it's, it's very like Robin Hood-esque. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. The, the tights and the, and the boots and the. It's, it's tights. It all comes back to tights. It's always the tights. I suppose for drawing comics, it looks good to have tights because then you can draw muscles. So you can yeah, see exactly. muscular yeah, yeah. and big, strong, you know, uh, manly men. But, you know, on film, why did they bring the tights over? I wonder. <laughs> I don't know. I like, don't know. I, I, you know, you're talking about a time where it's like, ah, we're men, we're reading Raymond Chandler novels, you know, Hitler, as I mentioned earlier. It's like Nazi time. It's, you know. Things are getting it is serious. funny, isn't it? That like Errol Flynn has this uh, this reputation as like a, a, a swashbuckling hero, and you know, like a real man's man, man's tough, man. tough guy. And he, he his most famous role, he's running around in a pair of tights all, all all movie. Yeah, and and tunics. You know, it's just men in like with really good legs. You know, just in a yeah. bit of a tunic. There's a lot a of good leg work of, in this movie. A little bit of modesty coverage. But, uh, you know, you can see, in fact, I was reading um, an anecdote about Olivia de Havilland kissing Errol Flynn because they have a really interesting relationship, actually, uh, Olivia mm. de Havilland, Errol Flynn. They made nine movies together. Yeah. And she got cast in this film because they'd been in Captain Blood together. And she yes, wasn't... which I still haven't seen. Have you seen that no, movie? No, I've, I've never seen Captain Blood. I have heard it's even better than this. I've heard that, oh, like, wow. that they got it right first time. Apparently that movie is fantastic. It's like a, a proper swashbuckling adventure. We should track it down. I wonder if it just doesn't have the legacy because it's not in colour. It might yeah, be Yeah, exa- to... possibly, yeah. Mm. Because they had such good chemistry in Captain Blood, that sealed the deal for Olivia de Havilland getting into this film. And yeah. they realised, oh, wow, box office, you know, in, in the way that things do, it was like these. the box office loves these two. Let's put them in another movie. And everyone went, oh, I like that first one. I'll go see this one. And so apparently they really did, they never had a relationship, but I've read lots of tales where, you know, she was one woman that he actually really did love, you know, for all of his sins mm. and all of his very many marriages and affairs. He actually had a great deal of like genuine affection for Olivia de Havilland and she for him as well. And she apparently in later times talked about how, you know, why didn't we get together? And uh, obviously it was 
better for her that they didn't. Yes, they seem better to for have her a, in the long run. Yeah, but they seem to have a genuinely affectionate, quite loving relationship as co-stars. And she talked about being in this scene with him where his wife was on set, but they had to do the kissing over and over again for different takes. And then she right. made some remark about by the end he was having quite a bit of trouble with his trousers, <laughs> with his tights. Oh, my God. <laughs> so... <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, for, for God's sake, Errol, keep it in your pants, buddy. Like, keep it in <laughs> no, your tights. She, but she said that with a lot of affection. Like she, Oh, yeah, she was, yeah absolutely. But, she you was know, like, telling this story about how much she was enjoying kissing him on screen. Sure. But he was obviously enjoying it. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's real chemistry right there. That's right. That's right. So, um, yeah. But I just, I mean, it, you can't go past the tights. It's a big thing in this movie. And I just, I find my eyes wandering to the tights because they're just such <laughs> not, I mean, look, regular listeners to Raven on slash now Robin on will know I'm a colossal perv from way back, but absolutely, you don't see people in tights that often. And even in the superheroes now, they don't tend to put them in tight tights anymore. You no, know? it's all like tactical armor and all that it's sort of all, thing. Yeah, it's all like Batman in kind of, you know, it's molded, sculpted rubber and leather and, you know, nobody's in full on, Apart from Adam West, you know, I can't think of a pure West. Yeah, pure is pure, unless it's a woman. That's that's the difference. You can still put women in tights because yeah. that's sexy, but you just don't get men to, you know, manly men don't wear tights. That's the, yeah. the whole premise of Robin Hood men in tights. It's like we're manly men. So I find my eyes wandering. Is all I'm saying. I'll stop now. Uh, I do like that the in the film when you see all the Saxons when they're first kind of coming into Sherwood Forest and joining the, the the Merry Men, they're mostly in tunics, maybe trousers, but they all adopt mm. the tights pretty quickly. Um, yeah, they, they, takes, they get a uniform going. Yeah, they get a camouflage uniform going. And I, just, I want to see, I want to see like day at the uniform handout where, come on, man, here's your, I'm Robin. Here's We're all going to dress tunic, like me. Green, green pants, green boots, green hat. Here's your, here's your allocated uh, costume for robbing and outlawing. Uh, do we do we need to? <laughs> Sorry, Robin. Just a question. Does it have to? Couldn't we get a pants option? Maybe a nice culotte. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't want to see those thighs. Come on, men. You can't be merry if you're wearing uh, loose trousers. <laughs> we need to see how excited you are about robbing the rich. <laughs> You'll bar up, and we'll all know. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Anyway, back to my list. I've distracted myself already by tights. Oh, I wrote uh, then that Basil Ras- Basil Rathbone mm. as Guy of Gisborne. Yes. Is it just me, or does he have kind of Adam Driver, Kylo Ren energy? Yeah, I was. I, I had that. I had him in my list specifically, and I actually put down Guy of Gisborne miscasts, and only because he's not villainous. And of course, like Basil Rathbone, quite famously, is one of the most famous. Uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, yeah. Uh, you know, so he he normally plays, and I mean, he was in quite a few horror films and that sort of thing. But I mean, like he was quite famously, like you know, this, this the, the great detective that that was his most famous role. And it's you, you find it hard to sort of find him purely villainous. And I think that's mostly because he's giving such a good performance in this. He's wringing a lot of pathos out of Guy of Gisborne, basically just being like, "Look, I, I'm kind of shy. I want to marry Marion, and you know, su- and 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 suppress some sacks." Like, what noble doesn't want to do that? Come on. So this is pre him becoming Sherlock Holmes. 
Oh, is it? So, yeah. He became oh, I Sherlock thought he'd already Holmes. been Sherlock Holmes by this point. No, 1939 to 1946 was his run, 14. Uh, I've actually never seen a Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes apart from bits and pieces. I've never actually seen Oh, he's very Holmes. good. I mean, again, he's sort of the one that everyone bases or, or is reacting to. Like, if you go back and watch it, you're like, oh, okay, that's what everyone's doing. Um, his real name, sorry, his full name, I should say, is Philip Sinjin Basil Rathbone. Of course it is. <laughs> How good is that? He was born in South Africa to British parents. There you go. I don't know. I kind of like the fact that he's not, I mean, he is villainous. He's plotting he is villain- to Oh, don't get me wrong. King. He is villainous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like this, this movie feels like, because you've got him right next to, you know, Claude Rains' as Prince John, yeah. who is just hamming it up. Oh, you know, like, like he's like he's like he's gnawing on a on a ham hock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, how good is his multicolored facial hair compared to his head of hair? Oh, incredible! Like just he's just got amazing. the fire engine red kind of free, <laughs> short short bangs, which are back in in style, with this orange beard. It's just yeah. great. It's it's just, fantastic. It's, it's such a look. Uh, Was that a, that would have been a fake beard? Surely, I assume it was a fake beard. <laughs> I assume it was. And then you've got Melville Cooper doing like a bumbling sheriff of Nottingham. So this is the other thing I wanted to talk about is this yeah. in this film, it's Guy of Gisborne who is the bad guy and the sheriff yes. of Nottingham is kind of the comedy relief. And there's yes. this fabulous scene where he's parading about still wearing the, the rags that they gave him in the forest after the, the banquet scene. And he's got this ratty hat on and prince john is i was watching it going why has he left that hat on and just as i thought that prince john goes take that stupid bonnet off it's like a (laughs) comedy scene of the sheriff going ah we'll catch him this way and then he puts the hat back on at the end and prince john is like take it off but yeah so the sheriff of nottingham in other versions is the bad bad guy but in this version it's guy of gisborne and i think in the tv robin hood guy of gisborne was also a bad guy, but kind of a sexy, brooding bad guy because it was played right. by Richard Armitage. Yes. That's the only reason I know, and he's obviously crumpet. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> although, did you watch, as an aside, did you watch Stay Close on Netflix? It was a Harlan Coben novel that they adapted. Apparently Ned, Netflix did a deal with Harlan Coben, who's a novelist, to a, adapt a whole bunch of his books. And so they adapted this one called Stay Close, and Richard right. Armitage is in it, and it it I laughed so hard watching that show that was not their intention to make me laugh. <laughs> it's like badged as this drama and intrigue and a woman with a dark past who worked at a strip club and now somebody's come back looking for her after she escaped and formed a whole new life and her soon-to-be husband and kids don't know that she had this past as a stripper and it's like it's just the dodgiest when, when was the book written because it feels like it's operating on a morality code that is probably about 10 years out of date oh i mean probably but it's just it's this weird thing where you're like oh my god what did this woman do in her past she she worked as a dancer like not even a stripper it was more just like exotic dancing and then oh, she what? you know something happened so she had to leave she was someone was stalking her, so she had to leave and run away. She moves maybe ten minutes away from the strip club, <laughs> <laughs> and so it's not like just, she leaves town. She no, just moves like you know a couple of streets over. She just moves a little bit away because the the strip club becomes, or the dance club becomes, you know, a sort of a key location for the mystery that happens a- afterwards. 
Uh, and it's just so fun. And, and Richard Armitage is in it as like her love from when, because I think she kind of runs out when when she's 19 or something. So Richard Armitage is supposed to be the, the, the young photographer who loved her and then lost her or whatever. And, and Richard Armitage is in his late 40s and he's trying to be this like hip. He's got tattoos and he's wearing kind of loose shirts and beanies and like bracelets around his wrists as if he's, you know, trying to play sort of late 30s. And it's like, dude, it's you, you're Richard Armitage. Put on a suit. You don't do hipster cash. I'm sorry. You just don't. Anyway. Oh, and the other thing is, Stu, you might have seen me tweet about this. This is the show with the all singing, all dancing, murderous uh, musical theatre couple. Yes. Yes, I have. I, I did see you talk about this. Yes. <laughs> they literally they literally dance and sing musical numbers as they kill people and then dispose of their bodies. And it just occurs out of nowhere. And you're like, That's wait, did so I? Insane. What did I? Did I change the channel? Did I? What is going on? And <laughs> anyway, apparently it's a big thing in the books and everyone loves it. They're like, oh my God, I love it. And they're called Barbie and Ken or something. I don't think they're ever named, but they're known as Barbie and Ken. And they're these hired assassins who the only clue to their origin is they see a flashback scene of them being in a musical theatre production together. Wow. And it's like, I don't understand why this, it's like the most shoehorned in bit of insanity. Uh, Anyway, stay close. Do not recommend if you're after quality drama, but if you want to laugh. (laughs) If you're after trash and you're out of everything else, get on that one. This is the thing. It's one of these things where it's like, this should be badged as a trashy, soap opera style miniseries but instead it's like oh, serious drama and because of that you laugh if they had gone oh my god it's a soap opera anyway back to robin hood Let me <laughs> well, get you're back. right you, you've identified the fact that like this this film and i have this on my list is this film has three villains in it and almost four if you count like the bishop of the black cannons yes yes i uh, like it's got too many like future adaptations quite rightly i think streamline it down into either and almost always that they go Sheriff of Nottingham and get rid of Guy of Gisborne. So some of them have Guy of Gisborne. I think Prince of Thieves has Guy of Gisborne as well in it. It does. But it, it crucially, it, do, it doesn't have Prince John. Yeah, and this is the thing about Robin Hood that always baffled me because I was a history nerd way back when. Yeah. Prince John becomes the King of England. Yes, you know? absolutely. But the Robin Hood story <laughs> is this triumphant, like, yes, for King Richard. King well, Richard. But, but I mean, yeah, King Richard came back. And, King Richard yeah. famously, out of a 12-year reign, spent less than a year in England. Yeah. Famously. Yeah. Fam- he is famous as being England's most absent king. Yes. Because he was he's always, always off fighting. He was either in France because he was a, a Angevin, you know, Plantagenets. They they came from France. His father Henry the Second and he would have he would have been speaking French. Eleanor of Aquitaine, of course, his glamorous mother, both of their mother, and uh, he was off on crusade or in France. He didn't really like England, and uh, John was still the heir and yes he was a bit of a shit and a lot of people didn't like him and he ended up dying of eating too many I think it was like this too many uh, eels I think and he got about a dysentery after eating too many eels and that's how he eventually died but uh, you know he was a very unpopular king and not a lot of people liked him sure but this whole idea that he sort of took over and then ha 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 Richard is back and has made like in this line where he says I free the the people from oppression it's like you did not mate yeah well what the hell are you talking about you did not you copped an arrow in the neck and then died of infection and then everyone (laughs) was left 
But what what he did do though is by him dying and John being a bit of a shit ended up in Magna Carta in twelve fifteen. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like John John is the the king who had to sign the Magna Carta. Yeah, and the Magna Carta wasn't about kind of going yes the people's rights. It was about uh, the, the yes, barons. The barons' rights. rights. <laughs> yeah. Because they were like, we're sick of being told to give you money whenever you want, so we're going to put some demands in writing. The other thing about that is that Robin talks about to Marion about serfs and oh, he talks to Richard about, you know, serfs should be protected, you know, and it's still this very top-down view of, oh, we're not going to free them because he keeps talking about freeborn men. But yes. serfdom essentially tied people to land and to lords. So there's no well, interest there, there in was a of- sense, and it's a very it's a very medievalist interpretation, which is that the feudal system is obviously the, the right way that society should be constructed, and everyone should should work, but but everyone should be treated fairly within Fair, that system. Yes. You know yes. what I mean? Like you know, don't yes. don't mistreat your your servants, the people who who <laughs> you who you legally own. Yes, the um, people who you are know, tied to you in bondage. Yeah, like 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 you know, like one step up from literal slaves. Like like don't mistreat <laughs> them. That would make you a monster. Like much going, sir. I just want to follow you. You don't. I don't need no pay. Just let me. Uh, let me have a bite of your, your food scraps from the table. <laughs> I'll do whatever the you si- want, sir. The sight of your tights is is enough for me, <laughs> sir. That Robin. is that is payment enough. Uh- <laughs> yes. No. So the the dynamics are really interesting because Prince John can only ever really be portrayed as a sort of scheming. Because um, he was, he was quite two faced, and he was, he was, I mean, he, he was, literally he literally did conspire to take over the throne while yeah. Richard was away. Like that's a, that's a historical fact. Conspired against his own father when when Richard sort of wanted to take Henry yeah. II down because the Plantagenets. If you ever if you ever want to read about a dysfunctional family, read about the Plantagenets, like Henry yeah. II and Eleanor of Aquitaine and their children, because there was not very happy family dinners. The Lion in Winter, I think, is the the famous play about the Plantagenets. Mm. But, um, you know, Richard was Eleanor's favourite. John was actually Henry's favourite. He was the youngest, but he was really clever. John was actually very clever. But when Richard went, that's it, you're old, old man, I'm rising up in rebellion against you, and John actually joined Richard and that's what sort of broke Henry and then he died not long after and Richard took over. So, you know, that's the family dynamic. Uh, you know, Richard is like somehow surprised that his brother turned on him when it's like, well, he already turned on your dad, dude. Like he's, yeah. he's, he's going he's gonna to turn on you eventually. But this is the thing. You have to kind of make that distinction of who is the proper villain. And in other versions of Robin Hood, they just take out Prince John, like in Prince of Thieves. It's just Nottingham and he's plotting against Richard. And it simplifies yes. it down. Yeah, exactly. The guy of Gisborne is the lackey to the Sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah, that's it. Um. So, and the sheriff is like, I mean, there's an argument that he's got way too much like money and power and status for a sheriff, but, um, you know, Guy (laughs) of Gisborne being a lord like he is in this film, it makes sense that he would have the more status and power. Yes, Um, exactly. Yeah. But it is interesting. You kind of got to make a choice of who is the proper villain. And in this one, they've gone, Guy of Gisborne is the villain, Sheriff of Nottingham, comedy relief. So. Yeah, which is fun, which is funny, isn't it? Like, like because it's so often like obviously, and even in the in the original stories and and you know into the modern day, it's always the sheriff of Nottingham. Mm. But and it's so weird that this movie, which is so iconic, has Guy of Gisborne as the main sort of antagonist in a way. Mm. Do you reckon any there's anybody out there who still like is called Guy? Because it was a very well established men's name. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a few and, people called Guy. And now it's just, hey, Guy, 
hey guys <laughs> you know it's, it's become a term for a, cool. a general term for people in general or specifically men in general like hey guys you know maybe you know if call in if you're named guy call in and just tell us what your life's been like <laughs> Yeah, someone someone comes in and says, oh, that guy. And you're like, hey, it's me because I'm guy. Or do you find it incredibly painful and wish your parents had just called you like Brad or something? Oh, I did love, that just reminds me, I did love how with the archers at the competition, I I feel like I'm all blah, blah, blah about this. So forgive me as my brain jumps from point to point, but there's like, welcome, St. Patrick of Harris or whatever it is. And then Elwyn, the Welshman. (laughs) Yes, I did note that. I was like, the last one is, Matt of Seaford. Yeah. <laughs> like his name is just Matt. And I went, that feels very modern. <laughs> you know. And Matt. Matt. And here's Matt. And there's Brad, Jaden, uh, Brandon. <laughs> Destiny. <laughs> yeah. Mercedes. <laughs> Mackenzie. Michaela. <laughs> Michaela with a Y. So, yes, Guy of Gisborne. Uh, has some good Adam Driver kind of I'm a bit tortured. And he's a bit of an asshole, but he's also – it's funny that they make him really shy around Marion. Like yeah, Prince yeah, John, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting John. character beat, yeah. Yeah, Prince John is telling Marion at their first dinner, you know, he's he's literally in the middle of Guy of Gisborne Prince and John is a messy bitch in this he, in this movie. Like oh he's just, oh, Marion, Marion, oh, he's shy. He, messiest drama queen in the he you're so right Stu I'm, I'm glad he's got the you know the blinging outfits the hair he's just like I am a trash queen and he's just <laughs> and Marion's like uh-huh, uh-huh. and he's like ah yes well if you marry him it will help our you know friends here it's good to have strong people and he's already in love with you it's like he's sitting right there he's, he's sitting there. right there <laughs> He can hear you, dude. And then he says to him at dinner, it's like uh, when Robin Hood comes in and starts, you know, doing some banter um, with the deer and he starts talking to Marion about, hey, hot lips, you're looking good. And and Prince John's like, oh, would you look at this? Guy of Gisborne is so in love with Marion and won't say anything. And here comes this cheeky rogue. <laughs> cheeky names, rogue. All these names, this rascal. Um you know, Prince Rascal or something they call him. And it, it talks to her like that. Oh. And this guy of Gisborne must be like, oh, do you have to keep referring to the fact that I really got a crush on Marion? She's right he's just, He's just sitting there throughout that whole scene oh. just fuming. Yeah, just why did you have to bring that into it? Can't you just say that he's being inappropriate to a lady? Do we have to bring in my awkward sort of, you know, attempts to grab her boobies? Like, <laughs> I, I did it once. I'm sorry. I'll try and act more gentlemanly. Uh, I just, I'm Guy of Gisborne. What's weird, what, what's weird about that whole thing, though, is that he never really, it never really, like, pays off in the sense that he's never resentful of Richard, if that makes sense. He's always, he focuses all of it at Robin. It's all like, I hate Robin Hood. And it's not like my boss is taking the piss out of me in front of everyone at this party. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what? That's so true. It's so true. It's like you've He never expresses frustration with with John, you know? Yeah, because he's John's bitch. Exactly, like, yeah. He's thrown in with the wrong guy and now he's like, ugh. Okay, well, if I kill this Robin guy, then I'm back to being the cool hot shit in John's eyes. (laughs) So I have no choice now. I can't really... 
But, I mean, the one thing that they don't do is because obviously in others where they, they try to marry, marry off to other people, they never sort of have that like in Prince of Thieves where they go, oh, we're having the, the wedding ceremony or we're going to force you and we see it. It's just like, oh, yes, you'll be marrying him at some point. Off you go. Mm. Speaking of Marion. Let's Marianne, just take it as a given. She's next on my list. I'm like, Olivia to have land, too beautiful for this world. I don't know what filters they put on her, but I want them. Uh, <laughs> granted, she was only about 21 or 22. Two maybe. When yeah, I, I went film? and checked, and and, and what, what's insane, like the ages of everyone in this movie is insane because yeah, like she's twenty one. Errol Flynn is twenty nine in this what? movie. No, like I'm I'm pretty sure I'm counting correctly. Yeah, because yeah, in nineteen oh nine is when he was in nineteen oh nine. So he was he yeah. would have been like he wasn't thirty when they filmed this. He was like twenty nine years old. Yeah, this is what happened in the past. They just yeah, people just, just aged no, savagely. They did, but they also became famous really young. Like Olivia oh, de Havilland yeah, yeah. and Joan Fontaine, her sister, came from, I think, a theater- theatrical family. So they were sort of already in movies in their teens. And then oh, sure. But I mean, but, but you think being... like someone like uh, who, who plays Black Widow now, not not Scarlett Johansson, although Scarlett Johansson was quite famous when she was like, you know, in her, in her 18, literal teens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when she did the um, Lost in Translation. But the thing is, and I'm I'm completely blanking on her name now. Florence she plays Pugh. Elaine. Florence Pugh is who I'm thinking of exactly. Who is like in her mid twenties now and still playing like young coded roles, like like teen or like very early twenty coded roles. I Whereas like was... Olivia De Havilland is playing a woman in this. You know? Do you know what I mean? Like the, like that's the yeah. distinction I think. Yes. Where yes. you can you can be into your thirties and still playing roles that are coded as young. Whereas like back in the day, you were just if you were over twenty years old, twenty one years old, you were you were a woman. Like you were just a woman. Yeah. Showing off my trash credentials. <laughs> I read a BuzzFeed article that was actors' ages versus the age of their character, <laughs> and so you've got all these people who are playing teenagers in various sure. teen kind of things and they're all in their late 20s or early 30s um so i think it's just something about like to get the maturity needed to play the roles you have to cast older people because if you actually cast real teenagers real teenagers are freaking awkward and covered in <laughs> spots and well yeah exactly you know they look like children so it's not really very if, if you're having like we're having our sexy teen high school thing, we need to be comfortable with like sexy times well, because we're watching ostensibly 17-year-olds kissing yeah. and whatnot. You actually, if you cast older actors, it kind of removes that grit factor. But if you if yeah. you if you were standing at a formal watching a 16, 17-year-old, you know, couple of kids trying to awkwardly dance or or smooch, you'd just be like, I shouldn't be watching this. This is wrong. Yeah. These are this children. Feels weird. This feels really weird. So that's why they get really buff and hot people in their 20s and older because it just removes that layer like you know we all know what a teenager looks like and they don't look like people on tv i think very specifically because <laughs> <laughs> i think it would be weird but yeah so this is olivia de havilland i think she was 19 20 when she was in captain blood opposite errol flynn and i just yeah. think about myself going how would i have possibly gotten into a movie at 19 or 20 but <laughs> it happens and oh absolutely I, I didn't think of myself as really young at that point, but I was. So, yeah. And, of course, Olivia de Havilland only died last year, year before. Uh, um, she, she died in 2020, aged 104. I mean, and, and, really the last you know, Long of may she reign. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, fantastic. Really the last. And I, I remember being, like, horrified because I tweeted about her, I think, the day before she died. <laughs> and I, I so, actually. So at least, you know, at least she's still with us. 
Uh, this is the thing. I said, if she can make it through the end of the pandemic, I think that gives us hope for us all. And like the next day it came out, damn, nope. Olivia de Havilland dies, age 104. And I was like, oh my God, I killed her. I killed one of the greatest actresses of, of the golden age of Hollywood. I'm a monster. Uh, so yes, you can check the timeline. Uh, I think the tweet's still up. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, she's she's fabulous in this. And what I like is that, yes, we're dealing with 1930s you know, social mores and stuff. But Marion is sort of always quite a independent or at least feisty. She makes up her own mind. She thinks she's smart, she's clever, and she's kind, you know. And I think those traits come through here, if not as feisty as probably in later versions. Absolutely. Um, where we have to get more, like, feminist. But in terms of the period accuracy of the time, she's kind of under a fair bit of watch. She, she's, you know, she's guarded. Her virtue is precious, all that kind of stuff. But even even within that, she's actually a very active character. Like like she's yeah, you know, she's not just sitting back passively and being that's, rescued and stuff. She's actively like taking part in the in the plot. Yeah, yeah, and she has a character growth because she's sort hmm. of Norman. Like, oh, we're fine, we're good, we're the good guys. And then she learns about oh, actually, some of the things we've done are wrong. And she kind of has to listen from learn from Robin, and and it's this mutual respect thing where he's like. I'm not judging you. I'm just showing you that what you've been led to believe is wrong because you're not showing the truth. And here's here's some truth for you. And yeah. it's just a lovely, mutual, respectful relationship. And I mean, yeah, obviously it's swashbuckling man and his fair maiden, blah blah. But I like that dynamic that Robin and Marion, as a as a legend, mm. always seem to have. And I think that's very. She's a good role model. She's she doesn't yeah. fight in this one. I think in probably some of them she fights or at least is seen as, you know, more active physically. But this one she's clever. She's the one who tells him, "No, I'm not going to come with you to the forest. I need to stay here and and watch out for treachery," she says. You know, I I need to save your ass from here cuz you're impulsive and you'll do some crazy shit. So I need Absolutely. To- <laughs> I need to be here uh and and make sure you don't get into too much trouble or I can warn you. Yeah, so it's just, it's a really lovely role and I think she plays it well and she's, yeah, I just I just want to say hooray for positive female role models from the 1930s. No, absolutely. But but even before that, I mean, going right back to her first sort of uh, appearances in the stories, she wasn't in the, the very early stories. She seems to have come out, she she was basically a, a, a May Day sort of figure, like a, like a May queen sort of figure because oh, okay. weirdly or not not weirdly it actually makes a lot of sense in the sort of 15 and 1600s robin hood became very closely associated with like spring and may day festivities people would dress up as robin hood and from there this sort of marion figure like like his may queen sort of arose and then and then the stories of the time sort of incorporated that character back into the original legends as like a, as like his love interest so that's how she sort of became incorporated in that um and it makes sense because like you know robin is associated with like the forest and, and the outdoors and all that sort of thing so he yeah, became of sort course. of this this may king sort of figure henry the eighth famously like uh was was uh, loved to stage like may day festivities where he'd dress up as like robin hood I didn't, I didn't know that. There you go. I knew he'd love loved a tournament. I didn't know that he liked to dress up as Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, but, I mean, yeah, it's so funny. that's what she's... It's very funny that someone who is like Henry VIII famously stole all the money from the monasteries and shut them down. <laughs> yes. But did not distribute that money to the poor. No, he did not. <laughs> like, it's... um. It's... And, and that's always been Robin Hood's deal. Like, like it's it's yes. always been a part of his character that he would, he would, he would take... 
from rich people and give it to those less less well off. You know, like that was always his deal. Yes, it's not like it's not like a new addition. That's been a, that's a core part of the character. There's a joke in um, uh, Blackadder when they're talking about the highwaymen. They said he's halfway to becoming the new Robin Hood. Why only halfway? <laughs> Well, he robs to the rich, but he hasn't gotten around to giving it to the poor. Giving it to the poor. <laughs> and also there's there's an app, I think, like a shareholder app called Robinhood. And it's like an investing app that you yes, trade absolutely. stocks on. And it's like, well, I don't I don't know that that's is that a correct use of the term Robinhood? Like is the idea that you're haha can you know anyone can get into stocks and investing and we're taking it down from the big boys and GameStop I think that was the point. Of- that they were quite yeah, they, they were quite heavily involved in that whole GameStop thing and then people realized they couldn't cash out <laughs> so <laughs> less robin hood and more sheriff of nottingham there yeah exactly exactly it is funny how people like to kind of call back to this ideal of rob from the rich steal from the poor when they're possibly not it's other ways they're not doing the second can... part yeah that's right so what else is on my list here it sets up a lot of the the legends and film that we know. I want oh, to be so a- much is based on this 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 film yeah. specifically. That this this film cements Robin Hood in popular culture. I think. Yeah, um, I did love how at certain points you sort of it was like here in the in the lush forests of probably <laughs> California. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's very obviously a, a sparsely wooded Californian field. Yeah, and there's a lot of like on the path up to the castle um, because they have some really inventive like I think matte painting backgrounds and stuff. So a lot of, you know, long shots and stuff, um, you know, they're they're obviously painted backgrounds. You know, they're not real. Yes, I see. I assume a lot of that is matte paintings. It has to be, surely. But but it looks incredible. Early special effects and it looks great. You know, they've they've coloured it and done the proportions and all the perspectives and it looks really good. But then you've got a whole bunch of people walking up a very gravelly sandy path (laughs) in bright sunshine yeah it does not look uh, about as much as um new zealand resembles uh greece in uh the xena and hercules (laughs) yes exactly exactly (laughs) like these lush lush new zealand um pastures and whatnot is greens and then when you go to greece and you're like it's so dry here it's so dry it's like rocks and it's like yeah rocky scraggly hills like nothing here how did how did the culture flourish? There's nothing here. <laughs> Maybe it's changed. Maybe it's been bleached by climate change. But yeah, Greece is so. It was. It's like you go to the Greek islands, and it's like don't flush any toilet paper down the toilet because the pipes are so old and they crack so much because there's no water. You know, yeah. the islands are so dry they crack. So don't flush anything down the toilet that you can instead put in a bucket. And then you're like, I I can't deal with this. I can't. It's a very natural <laughs> thing. When you're using a toilet and you're using toilet paper to then just pop that toilet paper in the receptacle of the basin and then it's flushed and it's gone and it's out of your life and you don't have to think about it. But in Greece, it forces you to confront every time and it it forces you to sort of go, I have, oh God, I have, I feel like a savage. I feel like a savage, but I'm not being, if I was flushing it, I'd be a savage because I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm hurting their sewerage system but also why can't you get a better sewerage system Greece my god <laughs> that aside come on yes. Greece lift, lift your game come on Greece I know you had a you invented democracy crisis. you need to work on your toilets <laughs> yes 
Greece, democracy, Romans did toilets. That's how it worked yeah, with the that's great true. empires. Exactly. That's, that's what exactly they, how it works. What, what have they ever done for us? The aqueduct. Yeah. Just on the uh, the sets and the and the idea of um, like the, the the matte paintings and things that they were using in this film. If you want to see something genuinely like stunningly impressive, watch the the 1922 Douglas Fairbanks Robin Hood because it has some of the most impressive sets I've ever seen. Like genuinely, I'm looking at these things. I'm like, how? Because I was assuming they were matte paintings or, or like superimposed shots or something. And I'm looking at them going, geez, that looks realistic. I'm like, I wonder how they did that. The way that they did it was they built a giant castle. Like yeah. you have no idea the size of this set, Natalie. I don't, I'm not sure whether you've, you've gone back and watched it uh, or not. No, I've, I've the only glimpsed a little bit. The sets are stunning. Like just incredible. In, in the in the Douglas Fairbanks version, like it's in, it's insane. You you assume that they are painted backgrounds, and no, they they built a giant castle. So so much so that Douglas Fairbanks apparently almost had a nervous breakdown when he saw them, <laughs> because he was. I, I read oh, this he was this anecdote. Was he? Uh, he was he was producing as well, obviously, and he had he looked at it and was just like, "Oh my god, what are we doing?" Yeah. Like he couldn't he couldn't undersee he couldn't wrap his mind around what they were accomplishing. We're going to lose so much money. Yeah, we're going to lose so much money. Uh, uh, they didn't. It was a they, huge success, but you massive know. success. Yeah, uh, but this film's no slouch too. It's pretty good. There's a lot of good uh, I, sets and things. What I love about it is how huge the sets are. These yeah, massive, cavernous, cavernous sets that uh obviously a lot of them are real i'm not sure if some were maybe painted but there's a lot that obviously were built in you know styrofoam and painted but they're massive and and also nobody invented a banister you've got so many stairs that are (laughs) just just exposed stairways i would have been hugging i don't like i like a banister i like that security and i would have been like hugging the stone every time i walked yeah (laughs) yeah but they're, they're colossal it's just everything is so echoey and massive the final thing I will say, oh, apart from mentioning, um, there's a character called Dickon the Assassin. There sure like, is. Dickon? Oh Who's my like God. throughout the whole film. Like like Dickon is a named character, like from the very beginning, like right through to the end. Yeah, here's Dickon. And it just made me think of Game of Thrones fondly and that whole character, Sam Tarly's brother, Dickon, and Bron going, Dickon? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Errol Flynn did a lot of his own stunts for this, and he's yes, so... yes, that was on my list. The stunts in this are incredible. Yeah, so athletic. Well, I'll leave that to your list then because you'll have more, I'm sure. But um, the last thing I wanted to say is how good is Much the Miller's son? Like, yeah, MVP, MVP. Uh, little John is fun, and in fact, Little John I think had played Little John in the Douglas Fairbanks version. Yes, yes, that that actor played him in the Douglas Fairbanks version, and then went on to play him again in something else. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> is it multiple times? It's like, oh, you need little John? Call this guy. He went. Um, it was uh, Alan Hale, and he played him in the Douglas Fairbanks version, this version, and then again in uh, a movie called Rogues of Sherwood Forest in 1950. So if he was, say he was in his early 20s when the first one came out, he would have been in his mid to late 30s when this one came out. Yeah. And then he would have been in his late 40s then or early 50s with the other one that's yeah, an impressive yeah. run at playing little john absolutely it's a 28 year gap that's like, like a, 20, a 28 year span of playing the character that's he was just synony- he was just synonymous with being little john and he's he's quite fun in this and it's his it, it, what i love about the little john scene and the friar tuck scene is that Robin treats him, he's like a real dick both times. He's a real dick, but both times he gets his ass handed to him. Yeah, he gets his ass handed to him and he's delighted by that. Yes, he's utterly delighted, chuckling and laughing like a lunatic. 
and going, like, yes, my come head on, hurts. you got to come with me. Yeah, my head hurts now, but you know what? You're a good man. Like that's how he <laughs> forms relationships with me. God knows what Will Scarlet had to do because they're already friends at the start of the film. <laughs> well, that's what that's what's so weird. I, I, I talked about this a little bit earlier and I, I had this in my list, but just the, the fact that we start, it's, it's a weird way to start with Robin Hood and Will Scarlet already being like bros. Like the, he's basically his sidekick and, and they're, they're just going about their business. This is what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I just think it's a really positive man on man relationship being depicted here. <laughs> it's like, Hey, we're bros. We hang out in the forest. I get, I get the sense that cause he, I think he introduces Will as some like Will of somewhere at one point before he starts referring to him as Will Scarlet. So I assume the Scarlet comes from the fact that he's like, no, 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 I'm wearing red and I'm owning it. I'm not apologizing for it. I'm Will Scarlet. That's my deal. It's my whole deal. But I think he's also- Robin's green, I'm red. Yeah. I think he's also kind of a a nobleman as well or has some nobility. Yes. Saxon lordship, similar thing, maybe not as high as Robin, but- yeah, they, so they, they kind of have the slightly fancier version and then they meet all the good salt of the earth men who can <laughs> be loyal and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, when he's fighting little John on the branch, uh, the tree, and little John is absolutely kicking his ass with that quarterstaff and, and, and mm. it's, it's done so well. It's just like bang, bang, and he's like, I hope you remember the lesson that I've taught you here today. And it's like, yes, like <laughs> – the banter is so good. There's like good jokes, <laughs> like a fun script. Uh, so, yeah, so much the Miller's son, though, uh, I just loved, and particularly in the final scene where he's, because um, he's like, he, he beats up the assassin, Dickon, and then it just cuts away. You don't see who actually won. It just kind of cuts away and then you we Yeah, well, I, again, I, I mentioned this in my list. Like he, he absolutely like gets stabbed a bunch of times. Like he's. Yeah. In a more modern movie, he would like give his message to Robin and then die. Like, yes, that exactly. Would be... Yeah. But in this one, he's just kind of shakes it off. Yeah. He's like, "Well, I'm fine now. Now I'm gonna like you know hilariously bonk uh, guardsman yes. on the head." I love that. He just and they had him do that so like so many times in the final scene where he's yeah. just using a cloche and just like to the point where he's pulling people's helmets off and then whacking them in the head. Yeah. And every time I laughed, like he did it again. I laughed again. I did it. Yeah. Just that actor was so char- like he had that real character actor face. Yeah, he exactly. was little, you know, so he was quite short, and he had the little romance with um, Marion's um, yes, wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. lady in waiting, and they had like their little cute romance. Uh, I loved it. It was just oh, made me happy. So <laughs> that's my list. Um, I'm sure I uh, managed to spoil a few of yours, but let's go to your oh, no. list. And- it's not. It's not spoils, Natalie. It's it's discussion. Uh, <laughs> so, um, the first item on my list was in like Flynn. <gasps> Uh, so obviously that's the famous yeah. phrase associated with Errol Flynn. Uh, he famously wanted to call his he wanted to call his autobiography "In Like Me," and his publisher Aww. talked him out of it. Uh, instead, it was called "My Wicked Wicked Ways," uh, yes. and yes, they were. The next item on my list was stunts. Uh, so many cool stunts yeah. in this movie, like people jumping from great heights. I was like, about to say, I forgot how much just dudes launching themselves out of trees. Launching themselves into thin air and then like just landing on other people, often on horseback, and then like two people falling off a horse just onto what has to be solid ground, right? Like there's, you, there's nothing like that. We're not at the point where you can just like hide, you know, paint out like, you know, mats digitally or yeah. anything like you know. You just you just kind of have to to you know grit your teeth and and take the hit. Yeah, and these and guys are falling from huge heights onto dudes. 
<laughs> onto like- other dudes. Yeah, yeah. Like, like these guys are copping a full-grown man in the face <laughs> and then both of them are falling onto the ground from, like, horseback, yeah. which can, like, famously, like, that can kill you if you're laying the wrong way. Yes. You know, it's just, it's crazy. It's just absolutely nuts, some of the stunts in this thing. Um, There's quite a famous stunt where I don't think it was... Errol Flynn himself, but like Robin cuts the rope of the of the portcullis and then rides the rope up to the top of the of the wall and then jumps over the other side. I think him jumping um, over was him. Yeah, him jumping him jumping over was him, but like there's a there's a famous stunt where he gets pulled up by the rope. And that's like a three-story yeah, yeah. climb. And that that stuntman is not hooked onto anything. He is hanging onto a rope, which is rapidly pulling him into the air. And then he has to get off before it just disappears at the top. And if he fails, I assume he'll die. Like, I assume that's what's going to happen. You know, like, it's just insane. Like, some of the stunts in this thing are incredible. Yeah. It's just amazing. The next item on my list was uh, Guy of Gisborne miscast. We talked about Guy of Gisborne and Basil Rathbone. I'm interested uh, that you think it's it's uh, miscast. I, I... Well, we kind of we kind of talked about that. I, I just thought, like, he brought so much, like, you know, dignity and pathos to what should be, like, a villainous role. And I, I, I and he was villainous. Like, yeah, he did he, really well. I mean, he I doesn't just, chew yeah. the scenery like Alan Rickman does. Either. Yeah, he seems you to know? be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But, like, he's being very, like, you know, restrained and dignified, which is, which is the sort of actor that he was whereas on either side of him he's got like a bumbler and a schemer you know and, and it, <laughs> I, guess, I guess they complement each other like I don't know it just sort of I, it was really struck me I'm like I don't know how you fit in this movie you feel like you come from a different movie but yeah he, he was very good I liked I liked him a lot Little John is just some guy in this is the next item in my list yeah, which I found yeah, really yeah. funny like Little John obviously you know has has is goes right back to the beginning of uh, the Robin Hood stories, like that, sto- that story about him and Robin having the the fight in, over the, on the log in the river is the story. But mm. he's always portrayed as like Robin's right hand man, you know, mm. like he's he's like his his second in command. And in this, he's just kind of there. He just happens to be a named merry man, you know. Like yeah, he's, he's got a real bromance with um, Friar Tuck going on though. Yeah, he and Friar Tuck kind of have a thing going on because Friar Tuck's like you're stupid, and he's like you're fat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And that, that's that's what all of their conversations boil down to. Yeah, you're stupid. Were, you're fat. They were sharing a tent, though. You know they were. At, you, they absolutely were. They were absolutely 100%. spooning yeah. in the forest. Yeah. They were spooning in Sherwood, baby. <laughs> absolutely. And that's the name of my next album. And you you assume Little John's the big spoon, but who knows? Um, I'm not assuming anything. I think no, Friar Tuck not. is very cuddly. Uh... <laughs> I think little John needs a bit of tenderness after all of that. You know, he's he's out there with his quarterstaff, but what's he doing in here with his quarterstaff? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. We, we found I was, I was worried we hadn't wrung enough innuendo out of this, and, and then we got there. It's excellent. Next item on my list was uh, Much Get Stabbed and is fine. He shakes yep. it off. It's fine. And then, off. and then the last item on my list was sword fights. Uh, yes. So many cool sword fights in this movie. Like just oh. proper old school swashbuckling sword fights kind of anachronistic in a way because those are broadswords and they are swinging those things around like crazy i suspect they're Um, more lighter they must have been made oh absolutely yeah 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 yeah. like but but they're 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 fighting as if they've got like you know 
pirate swords. You know, yes, that's yes. basically what they're doing. But it's fine. It, it, it's cool. I don't even I don't even mind because like the the fights in this are great. They are really good. That they, they they're stagey in a way that you don't get in movies anymore and yet they feel very unplanned and visceral as well yeah they're super super energetic like frenetic. yeah it's almost like and I, I i i half suspect this is the case i haven't i haven't checked but all of these guys would have been pretty fluent in like stage fencing i you wonder yeah. if they just sort of said to them listen just just have a go like see see what you can do eventually like you have to be over here and robin has to win but until then have at it you know like just well, see how you go Stu, as someone who did dabble in historical fencing for yes. a, about a year before i just fell out of it and i really need to go back because i enjoyed it immensely mm. there's obviously like fencing fencing like olympic style fencing and then you've got your more historical fencing, which you can do kind of without the armor and that sort of thing. Yeah. Some of those guys, when I chatted to them about what are good examples of sword fighting or fencing, the Basil Rathbone, Errol Flynn kind of sword fight does get a mention as a really good yeah. example of that, which I'm like, oh, that's great, you know, because there's – and the Princess Bride one, I think, gets a gets Yes, a that, that's often held up as like – one of the more um, realistic sort of sword fights. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's possible that they were given it, – it does seem to be, in my very limited experience, more like that kind of fencing, Olympic fencing, where you're sort of going back, back, forward, forward, back, back, forward, forward, whereas the type that I was learning was more Spanish-style fencing, which was more circular. So you're kind of going round and round and circling each other, that sort right. of thing. There's, I mean, there's a bit of that, but if you look at those great big shots, they often have just couples, you know, pairs of men just kind of going crash, crash, smack, 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 smack. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. But just the scale of it is really fun. Like they must have built a massive soundstage and then not turned the sound on at all. <laughs> it would have all been added in post. But it's like smash, smash, smash. Yeah, it's super frenetic, super fast, but not – it doesn't feel sped up or impossibly fast. It definitely feels like really quick on their feet, light. Oh yeah, no, I don't. I don't think there's any speed ramping at all. I think they're yeah. really like they're doing it for real, which which gives it an air of authenticity, even though it is very stagey sort of fighting. Yeah, and it's fantastic. And and then and then it's one of those classic sort of old Hollywood things where you know that they don't make too much of it. Like they they just sort of goes stab, and then and then guy Gisborne's dead. You know, he falls off the yeah falls off the side, and then and then it's dead. We won. <laughs> You know. I was reading something about the, um, like there was one guy who did all the archery. So all of like the shots of people getting hit by arrows were fired by oh, one right, dude. Yeah. And he, he was the guy who played the Welshman at the, at the fight, Oh, right. At the, okay. At the, yeah. At the uh, competition, the tournament. Well, um, that's the other thing too. Was he just firing into pads? Yeah, so he was firing oh these dudes. Oh, my God. Yeah, so these dudes were wearing, what does it say who? They, um, those shot with arrows wore clothing padded with balsa wood on protective metal plates. The metal Jesus. Plates, yeah, the metal plates prevented the injury, although the impact was fairly painful, and the arrows lodged into the balsa wood to create the illusion of bodily penetration. Howard Hill, uh, he was a professional archer, was cast as Elwyn the Welshman an archer scene shooting at Robin in his escape from Nottingham Castle and later defeated by Robin at the archery tournament. Because I was I was sitting there wondering how they would have done that and it turns out 
they just shot people they with shot arrows. Shot people with arrows. That's yeah. so. That's such a 1938 <laughs> film thing to do. Like he obviously he was a professional and could shoot to target, but I think that's Jeez, why you want to be. I think that's why you get so many shots of people just taking an arrow like really calmly, <laughs> like 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 sitting very still, sitting very still, taking, a, taking an arrow and then slowly sort of falling and, over, and you know, kind of having their arms up almost already so they can go ah and then slide <laughs> because they've had the wind knocked out of them by an actual arrow. <laughs> yeah, because they've been hit in the chest with an actual arrow fired from an actual bow. That is nuts. <laughs> oh, my God. So with the splitting the arrow shot, which is obviously kind of a famous Robin Hood thing, as you mentioned earlier, so it was this guy, Howard Hill, who who did that shot. He did, in fact, split one arrow with another during filming, albeit while filming from a much closer range than Robin Hood is portrayed as shooting from. Because Robin Hood at that point is like, hey, why don't you push the target back a bit so men can shoot at it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so cocky. So he did split the arrow, but it didn't look good on film. So the shot was redone with some effects trickery. Well, uh, even even the version they have in the film is kind of underwhelming in a weird way. Yeah, well, it's I think that's what Robin Hood Prince of Thieves does really well because you kind of see it from the arrow's perspective. Yeah, exactly. So like, they that, slow it down and you yeah. get it, like they get the big split and stuff. It's that it, it, it's it just sort of, like, of happens. Whoosh, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this one, Stuntman Buster Wiles, who was a close friend of Errol Flynn and his frequent onset stand-in, maintained that the arrow-splitting stunt was carried out using an extra large arrow for the target and that the second arrow had a wide flat arrowhead and was fired along a wire. This wire can briefly be seen attached to the fletchling of the arrow in the final film. Uh, Flynnport performed most of his own stunts. Exceptions include, oh, exceptions include uh, Robin jumping onto a horse with his hands tied behind his back during the hanging scene. That was pretty cool. Uh, scaling the fortress gate and coming scaling down the, the other side. Gate, yeah. Yeah, so that was a stuntman. And a few select shots in the duel between Robin and Guy of Gisborne. So, yeah, he Fair did enough. most of that fight himself. That was pretty awesome. Sorry, back to your list. Stunts. Awesome. I don't know where we're done. So so sword fights was my last uh, item. And I was like, yeah, because I remember watching this film as a kid and just like that, that's what you take away from this when you're a kid. You you mm. get the, the arrow stuff, um, like, like the archery stuff and then the sword fight stuff. Like you get the, you know, sword fights on, on stairs is, is like burned in my brain from when I'm very young. <laughs> and it's such a classic, like it's been sort of taken off. Oh yeah. As like well. endlessly copied. Yeah. Also, apparently the sword fighting in this was an inspiration for the Star Wars um, lightsabers. I had heard that. Yeah. It's one of, mm. one of the inspirations for the, the lightsaber fights. I just wanted to mention something that I remember when I saw this film and also Gone with the Wind. There's a name in the credits because I, I love that back in the day when, you know, you did all the opening credits when the film started. Yeah, and they so just the, get them out of the way. They're like, here's everyone. Okay. Here's everyone. And it wasn't everyone. It wasn't nearly no, everyone. not even close. <laughs> it's like, here are all the important people. Writer, director, main stars, who did the catering, stunt chief, coordinator, whatever. But a name that crops up, which obviously made me go, hang on, is Natalie Kalmus. Right. Uh, and she, the reason why I know is that she was also credited in Gone with the Wind. And she was in charge of the Technicolor. Uh, and oh, right. Obviously okay. why I found that interesting, because my name is Natalie and also you've got like sure. a woman credited with quite this quite technical thing. So just doing a quick search, I thought I should look her up. But apparently she was the ex-wife of one of the dudes who invented Technicolor, Mr. Kalmus. Uh, let me just see his name. Oh, yes. Yeah. So Herbert, Herbert Kalmus and mm. Daniel Frost Comstock were the inventors of Technicolor. Right. According to a quick search. 
And obviously Natalie Kalmus was married to Herbert Kalmus and became proficient in the use of this Technicolor camera. And it says here on the Wikipedia entry, uh, one major drawback of Technicolor's three-strip process was that the cameras required a special bulky large-volume sound blimp. Film studios could not purchase Technicolor cameras, only rent them for their productions, complete with camera technicians and a colour supervisor to ensure sets, costumes and makeup didn't push beyond the limitations of the system. Often on many early productions, the supervisor was Natalie Kalmus, ex-wife of Herbert Kalmus and part owner of the company. Directors had great difficulty with her. Vincent Minnelli said, I couldn't do anything right in Mrs. Kalmus's eyes. She preferred the title Technicolor Director, although British licensees generally insisted on colour control, so not to dilute the film director's title. <laughs> right. She... But, but effectively, are we talking like she was like a, almost a de facto like director of cinematography, basically? Like, is that... I, yeah, I guess making sure that the colours that they used, the, the, the types of materials, the types of lighting used would make it through the cameras, you know, the, the system. Uh, yeah. I'm not uh, yeah, smart yeah. enough to, to understand everything, but I just like the idea that there was this woman on set going, no, you can't do this, no, you can't do that, because the Technicolor cameras were so specialised that they had to be brought in. You couldn't just have a director go film this, film that. You had to have someone supervising it all. And that was a woman, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, no, that's fantastic. That's so cool. So what does it say here? Um the process of splitting the image reduced the amount of light reaching the film stock. Since the film speed of the stocks used was fairly low, early Technicolor productions required a greater amount of lighting than a black and white production. It is reported that temperatures from the hot studio lights on the set of The Wizard of Oz frequently exceeded 38 degrees Celsius, and some mm. of the more heavily costumed characters required a large water intake. Some actors and actresses claimed to have suffered permanent eye damage from the high levels of illumination. Because of the added lighting, triple amount of film and expensive producing dye transfer projection prints, projection prints, Technicolor demanded high film budgets. <laughs> so just looking that up, oh, I should mention the score as well. The score is by Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Uh, yes, so he, yeah, yeah. He was an opera composer and he approached this as an opera without words. Sure. Um, but apparently he wasn't super excited. He was more like, I am a composer of drama and of the heart. <laughs> and he felt this was like an action piece. This was like beneath him. Um, so he agreed to begin composing on the condition that he not have a contract and work on a week by week basis. So if he could withdraw, if he was dissatisfied with the music he composed, that's quite a <laughs> loophole. Wow. Uh, however, Kongol later admitted the real reason he changed his mind uh, was not that condition. It was because Adolf Hitler met with Austrian ministers in 1937, which convinced Korngold it was no longer safe in his home country. As he feared, Austria was annexed by the Nazi and his home yeah. in Vienna was confiscated. That meant that all Jews in Austria were now at risk. So Korngold stayed in America until after the end of World War II. So again, it's crazy sometimes to think about, you know, pieces of culture like this being made while, yeah. the, you know, the composer is literally running from the Nazis, basically. Yes, exactly, yeah. Like All, all uh, of this golden age of Hollywood sort of thing is is happening in the shadow of World War II. Or in the shadow of the build-up, you know, of Yeah, of, like, like of the build-up to World War II. And then, yeah. yeah, and just that's why you get so many, you know, prolific Jewish people in Hollywood is so many of them were on the yeah. run from the Nazis. They you know? fled the Nazis. Yeah, and it was, uh, yeah, just extraordinary. So it's like... 
he had this out, I guess. He was like, oh, I'm not really keen on this whole Errol Flynn movie. Uh, they've taken my house. You know what? I am going to come over and yeah, do this like- film. <laughs> and I might and just hang stay around. stay in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just extraordinary to think about those 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 things that happen, and there, there's a lot of stories like that, I guess, from from around that time. Um, Absolutely. So, well, apparently, yes. it was hugely influential. Like the music score in this was hugely influential because this sort of set the tone then for big Hollywood films having this sort of symphonic soundtrack. Yeah, in fact, it says right here on the wiki page because I do oh, my right. research. Composer John Williams has cited Corngold as his inspiration in scoring the Star Wars series. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure he he was inspired. You should you should really listen to Holst's The Planet Suite if you want to see where John Williams got most of his ideas <laughs> for Star Wars. <laughs> it's a good suite. It's a it's sweet a very suite. good suite. It's an excellent sweet set of suite. music. But yeah, that's uh... Uh, and Corn Gold won an Oscar for this, and, and it's funny too because like listening to it now, like I'm. Like, like listening to it with a modern sensibility and, and obviously like, you know, uh, adjusting for uh, modern ears and stuff. I still am like, it's fine. Like it's a fine score. I couldn't hum any bars of, of like a theme from it, if that makes sense. No, I don't think it is as, um, you know, when you think about Gone with the Wind, you sort of think da 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 da. Yeah. I haven't really seen Gone with the Wind probably have heard that riff more. Um, yeah. But I think that style of like, you know, just that frenetic, yeah. um, upbeat. Well, treat, treating it with a full a full orchestra and, and like an opera, having that big sort of sound behind a, a film. Yeah. So this film was, I can't see the cost of it. Uh, it cost um, $2 million, I think. Okay. Or... Apparently it earned $2 million domestically. And two and a bit overseas, so it's just four million in revenue. I suspect it didn't cost. Yeah, no, no, no. It, it cost two million. It was the most expensive film um, that Warner Brothers had made at that stage. Mm. Um, so because it normally, was, it was the Justice League of its day. <laughs> kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a big swing. It was a big swing for Warner Brothers. Uh, but it and paid, it paid off. off. Like, yeah, yeah. absolutely. They, and, they broke even domestically and made their money back uh, overseas. And they have a whole bunch of um, other films that they then slammed Errol Flynn and, and Olivia de Havilland into. Yeah, that they had a, a ready-made pair to, to put out there. It was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, but it lost to The Life of Emile Zola. Ah, I've not, I've never seen that. No, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a good episode about it for the Best Pick Pod. Oh, best Pick Pod, absolutely. Um, if you have a listen to that, you can learn about it. Sounds really interesting. I should go see it. But also Best Pick Pod have a book out now, which is pretty exciting based on the based on the podcast. Uh, shout out to Tom and Jess and John for their hard work. Um, check it out if you haven't listened to Best Pick. They're still doing movies, just different different types of movies now, ones yeah. that didn't win the Oscars. Um, Where, where's our book, Natalie? <sighs> Stu, you know, I... We should write. We, we, we need to we need to write I, one first. I think I think we could write, you know, based on our <laughs> love of doing capsule reviews. I don't see why we couldn't write a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, a back and forth. You know, I write a paragraph, you write a paragraph, <laughs> sure, and we discuss a film based on its merits. I don't think I think we could do that. Let's do uh, that. If you're a publisher, call in because please I need, do. I need projects. So everyone's got a book deal. I'd like one. Yeah, I would love a book deal. Stu, do we want to rank the Robin Hood films? Oh, I think we will. I think that's become that's become a fun little thing that we do. I it's, think it it's is. hard to rank. It's hard to rank one film. It's in my top spot at the moment. It's, it's, it's straight into number one with it's a bull. Straight into number one with a bull, with an arrow, <laughs> with an arrow right through the middle, down the down to the bullseye. <laughs> 
So right now, we both agree The Adventures of Robin Hood is our number one Robin Hood movie. <laughs> yes, num- number one with an arrow right to the bullseye. Right to the balsa wood in the chest. Yes. Over the top of the metal plates and underneath the padding of the tunic. <laughs> and letting someone fall very unconvincingly off a horse. It just makes sense when you watch those scenes and there's never anyone Oh, it does now sh- in hindsight. Oh, yeah. my God. And it ne- it, you never see anyone being shot in the middle of something else. It's always it's always a reverse shot just of someone being hit. Yes. So you yeah. realise they did that so they could edit it in, you know. Anyway, we talked about it all. I love this film. I would happily watch this film again. It's made me so happy just to watch it. It's been uh, probably 10 years or so since I've seen it, but uh, it was like a comforting, warm friend. So if you've not (laughs) seen The Adventures of Robin Hood, like treat yourself. Errol Flynn is just, look, he's one of those complicated figures from history, but the dude's got charisma. I can't deny. He does. We need an outro. How are we going to... Is there a Robin Hood sort of? Maybe we need yeah, a hurrah. He doesn't really have a. He doesn't really have a, a catchphrase, does he? For Robin and his merry men. See you in Sherwood Forest. I don't See know. See you in that. Sherwood Forest. <laughs> we can do that. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to the very first episode of Robin On. Uh, we will be back next time with the story of Robin Hood, which is a 1952 Disney. RKO production, which is on Disney Plus. So if you have Disney Plus, you can watch that one. Uh, I am at Girl Clumsy and Stu is at Disco Stew on Twitter. Please call in if you have any opinions about Robin Flynn. Uh, Robin Flynn. If you have any <laughs> opinions about Robin Flynn, like to be fair, he does own the role. Uh, Errol Flynn or Robin Hood, um, let us know. And if you also, you know, just want to appreciate Olivia de Havilland, you can do that too. Thank you so much to my Patreons, my patrons on Patreon, I should say, www.patreon.com slash girlclumsy. I appreciate you so much. So many of them uh, seem very keen for the Robin On series. So hooray, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, facebook.com slash Natalie's Throne is where you can find us on Facebook. follow. Until next time, Stu, I guess I'll see you... In Sherwood Forest. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> <That works. laughs>